0: As your word goes out today, Father, give me clarity, give me passion when I speak. Father, uh, we say, um, we just sang in that song, Lord, here is our heart, Lord, Uh, speak what is true. So Lord, your word is true and your word is what can sanctify us. And so we ask that your word would go forth in a powerful way and that your spirit would quicken your word. God, help us to pay attention and to focus in on what you have for us this morning. And we ask these things together in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This was in the year 2012 when my son Tyler and my daughter-in-law Allie, they were both going to Azusa Pacific University down in Southern California together. Uh, They did in California what few people seem to do anymore. They graduated in four years. I think the reason was because it was a private institution and mom and dad weren't going to pay for year five. So uh, they took full loads and and graduated. And uh, 2012 was the time to celebrate that for them. They were going to be getting married in just a couple more months. And so we go on the campus there at Azusa Pacific University. And on the west side of the campus, I'm walking around just exploring. And I come across a statue and the statue was, it looked like somebody from a long time ago and he had his hands up and he was, it looks like he was speaking or preaching. And I found out that uh, that gentleman in the statue there at APU uh, is none other than John Wesley, the founder of the Wesleyan movement, the Methodists, uh, one of the uh, founding movements that helped begin Azusa Pacific University. And uh, you might know John Wesley from being a great preacher in England. You might know his brother, Charles Wesley, just a few years younger. You may not know who Charles is, but I bet you know some of his songs. He wrote 6,000-plus Christian hymns, including Hark the Herald Angels Sing and O oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing, Christ the Lord is Risen Today. hallelujah. You know that song? Great song. And that's just his brother. I don't know how big Charles was, but John Wesley was a tremendous preacher, endured great opposition during the time of his ministry. They said he was five foot three and he weighed 128 pounds. So not a big man physically, but what a big man in his spirit and in his influence. Because in the 1700s, for 50 years, John Wesley shook up the United Kingdom with his gospel preaching. He challenged listeners to a deeper level of commitment to God and to pursue a holy life. Many of his listeners were unsettled by his words. A lot of listeners were not ready for pure gospel preaching at that time in the Church of England. Many resented uh, his influence and his passion and um, his style offended a lot of believers and many churches became closed to him. And so what he would do for almost 20 years is if the church was closed to him, he would go outside the church. He would go down to the village plaza. And there was usually this cross that was somewhere on the village plaza. And I guess it was put up in most of the towns and villages in England. The cross was to remind all the merchants in the town that Jesus is watching you. (laughs) You know, so make sure you do business on the up and up. And so John would gather people in the marketplaces, he would start singing a hymn, and he would gather a crowd, and then he would preach the gospel to them. And he had a lot of opposition. A lot of the religious clergy and the leaders and the pastors there, they would uh, incite Uh, opposition and persecution of John Wesley. Often crowds that he would be preaching to, they would start throwing rotten tomatoes at him, or they would throw uh, manure, or they would even throw stones at him. Homes that he would stay in at night often would be set afire during these years from 1738 to 1757. But you know the greatest part about John Wesley is he just kept on preaching the gospel because God had called him to reach England with the good news of Christ. And the Holy Spirit, in in spite of the opposition and the the haranguing and the harassment that he endured, uh, he kept on preaching and the Holy Spirit would work powerfully among the mobs. They said that many people, uh, it was said that many who came to devour Wesley like lions, they would leave the meeting as lambs. Many found their souls awakened to God. And so Wesley was dragged before magistrates. He was beaten with fists. He was pummeled with rocks. Uh, Homes, like I said, he was stayed in were set afire. And how discouraging. Can you imagine for almost 20 years being called by God to preach in a hostile environment like that? must have been rather discouraging for John Wesley. But you know what? He refused to give up. And his courage in the face of that opposition, it made all the difference. Because it was in around the year 1757 That Wesley had been preaching thousands of sermons. It said that in his lifetime when he died at almost 88 that he preached about 40,000 sermons. I, I counted 60 years and it means he preached about 11 or 12 times a week on average. So he was a busy, busy preacher. Uh, By the time uh, Wesley turned 60, he'd become something of a celebrity, and now he started getting invited to preach in every pulpit in the churches of England. And by the time he was in his 70s and 80s, he became a national hero. He helped launch a revival in Great Britain that spread to the Americas. By the time that Wesley died, there were 120,000 Methodists in England and in America, So he wouldn't quit. England experienced a revival, and all because John Wesley refused to give up in the face of opposition. His verse, uh, you can imagine, was in the Beatitudes, Jesus' words in Matthew 5. It says, blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus said, rejoice and be glad. Be kind of hard to do to rejoice and be glad in a moment like that. But Wesley persevered. You know, even more glad that I am that John Wesley didn't give up in his day preaching. I'm even more grateful that the Apostle Paul never quit on the, me- on the ministry that God called him to do either. We're going to see some of the intense, p- immense persecutions that Paul endured during his lifetime in this chapter in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to 2 Corinthians 11. Uh, if you would like to look up on the screen, many of the scriptures are going to be up on the screen. We begin 2 Corinthians 11 with Paul saying that I'm jealous. You know, that's an interesting uh, phrase for a Christian to say. Most of the time, most of us would say, jealousy, is that a Christian attitude? Is that a Christian trait? I think most people in their first uh, first blush response to say, is jealousy a good thing? Most people say, oh, being jealous, that's kind of petty. That's kind of, you know, not being full of the Spirit. Paul was jealous, Paul was jealous for the Corinthian believers because they were getting led astray by these false teachers. And Paul said, I'm not going to put up with that. I'm not going to let you go that way. I'm not going to let you settle for lesser things. So Paul says in verse 2, he says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. You know, Paul said, I'm jealous with a godly jealousy. Where did Paul get this idea that God, that, that the holy God, uh, uh, our creator, is a jealous God? Where did that idea even come from? Well, it came from the law. It came from the books of Moses in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 5, uh, or excuse me, chapter 4, God's words through the prophet Moses to God's people there In the east side of the Jordan, getting ready to go into the promised land after the end of the 40-year wilderness travels, God tells them, he says, be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. The Lord your God is a jealous God. Can you imagine God being jealous for us? He says in the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before you. It's not just that God is mad at us when we go astray from him. Yeah, his feelings are hurt. The Bible says we can grieve the Holy Spirit. But I think God is jealous because he knows that when we leave God and we go and pursue something else, we're going after lesser things. We're going after things that really ultimately are not going to satisfy us and are really only going to lead us to pain and to more suffering and estrangement from God. And so God says, I'm jealous for you. And Paul says, I'm jealous for you, Corinthians. I want to present you to Christ as a pure virgin, just like he's your husband and, and he, or Jesus is the bridegroom. So God is a jealous God. It's okay, and this is something for husbands and wives, it's okay to be jealous for your wife. It's okay to be jealous for your husband. You know, they are supposed to be exclusive to you and you to them. So Paul goes on and he's, he's pointing out that uh, the Corinthians. He says, you guys are in danger of becoming a weak congregation, he says in verse four, for if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, remember, he's talking about jealousy because he says you should not go after idols. God is a jealous God. He doesn't want us to go after lesser things. So Paul's saying, you Corinthians, you're not to go after lesser things either. And so he says, you're in danger of that. And Paul's pointing it out to them. He says, if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received or a different gospel from the one you accepted, he says you put up with it easily enough. You're easily led astray by these false teachers. Now Paul goes on and he describes the false teachers. He describes them and he says, you know, they may look good, they may sound good, they may be eloquent of speech. He says, but they're actually following in the footsteps of the one who's deceiving the false teachers to lead God's people astray. And that deceiver ultimately is Satan himself. Look what it says in verses 13 and 15. He's talking about the false teachers in Corinth. He's laying into them. And he's saying, you want to know what they're really like? You want to know the spirit that's behind Uh, what they're teaching and, and how they're leading you away from pure devotion to Christ. He says, for such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. In other words, they're putting on a mask as if they were apostles of Christ, but that's not who they really are. And no wonder for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. So even though he's as dark as dark gets, even though he's evil, even though he hates Christ and everything about Jesus, Satan can actually appear as an angel of light. It is not surprising then that if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. You know, in reality, Satan's the prince of darkness. But what he's really good at is Satan is an expert in deception, And we remember our Lord Jesus when it says what he did for us in Colossians chapter 1. It says, the Lord Jesus rescued us from the one who rules the kingdom of darkness. Who is Satan really? He's the prince of darkness. But who does he appear and deceptively masquerade himself at times? He even looks like an angel of light. So sometimes when these false teachers come along, of course they're not going to be holding a pitchfork. Of course they're not going to be having a tail and being dark and evil and saying terrible things because because then they wouldn't deceive anybody. The only reason a counterfeit bill, like a, a counterfeit $20 bill or $100 bill, the only reason it ever works as a counterfeit is because it looks a lot like the real thing, right? So we have to have the discernment to be able to tell the real from the false. How are we going to tell who the false teachers are. How are we gonna tell who is really preaching the the true gospel and who is being deceptive and leading us astray? Well, I think there's some signs. I think there's some signs of how you and I can spot a false teacher and false teaching. Now, there's a lot up on the screen, so I just wanna go over it real quickly with you. It says, signs of a false teacher. The first sign is authoritarianism. There's a lack of a servant's heart on the part of the leaders. Jesus said the son of man did not come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What you see in a false teacher is they don't have a servant's heart. They want they want to be the boss, they want to be the leader, they want to tell everybody else what to do. They don't want to serve anybody. There's a lack of grace on their part. So that's one of the signs. The second sign is exclusiveness. It's the attitude that their way is the only way. They've come along to now give you the truth. And it's usually the Bible plus some kind of special revelation that they're claiming to have. And so the Bible plus some other book or other body of revelation that they have to say, hey, you can't just believe the Bible. Now you've got to start with the Bible. It's a good jumping off point. But now the real deep revelation is over here in this extra book that we have. And they're violating the very scripture that says don't add to the scripture. Don't take away from the word of God. Because when you do, all of the curses that God promises in Revelation against the godless, that's gonna fall on the people that go away from God's word. So there's, they, their, their attitude is their way is the only way, and they've got this extra revelation. They're greedy. They manipulate people in order to get money. They practice sensuality. They replace the moral purity Uh, Especially in the in the area of sexual morality, they replace that with looseness, and they try to redefine uh, what relationships are and redefine what marriage is, things like that. Uh, They practice unaccountability. They, They they they. govern in secret. They're irresponsible. They don't have anybody to answer to. There's no governing board. There's no elders. There's nobody to hold them accountable. You know, they'll they'll have this attitude was, well, it was God himself who gave me this revelation. And it's God himself to whom am I answer to? And they don't answer to anybody else. That's a sign of a false teacher. And then finally, rationalization. When people do come along and people do start saying, Hey, I hear what you're teaching. And it doesn't line up with what we know of Scripture. They immediately, they become defensive when confronted. They start taking the Scriptures and twisting them and distorting them to try to fit their lifestyle, to try to fit their new revelation and their teaching. So watch out. Watch out for false teachers. We're not to fall into the trap of finding them. You know, you realize Jesus could always tell a false teacher. You know, he could always tell which who is true and who is not true. You know, you've heard this saying, right? It says, you can fool some of the people all the time, right? You can fool all the people some of the time. But you can't fool Jesus any of the time. (laughs) He is unfoolable. He is undeceivable because he knows all things and he knows the truth from the lies. And Jesus said, you know how you tell a false teacher and the false prophets, Matthew chapter 7? He says, you can detect them by the way they act. The, the old uh, an older translation says, "By their fruits, you will recognize them. By the outcome of their way of life." In fact, what it says in Hebrews it says, "Follow your leaders, uh, uh, respect their authority and their teaching. They're going to give an account to God for their leadership." And it says, "Consider." It says, watch your leaders, and he says, consider the outcome of their way of life. In other words, check the fruit, check the actions. Do they actually live out what they say they believe? Do they live out in their own lives what they're telling everybody else to live out? He says, and Jesus says, by their fruits, you will recognize them. So then Paul goes on, and now we're, in the, we're, at, we're now in the part where Paul is going is to recount all the times in his life when he endured difficulty and persecution and opposition and beatings and, and sufferings that he went through to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ in this world. How much suffering he went through to advance the gospel. But in order to start with he's going to say, you know, please stop listening to the false teachers. They're not real. In fact, you want to know another reason why they're not real? False teachers are not willing to go through persecution to advance their cause. False teachers when 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 opposition and violence and difficulty comes their way, they're going to they're either going to quiet down or shut up or they're just going to slink away and go away. And Paul wasn't going anywhere because God had called him to that ministry. And and he says he says you want to you you want to know the difference between me and these false apostles over there, these false teachers? And says so says fine. Okay, let's make a comparison. I'm not really happy to do it. But if you, if you need to know the difference between a real apostle and the false, let me, let's get into it. So Paul says in verse 16, I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then tolerate me just as you would a fool so that I may do a little boasting. And now Paul starts to recite a list. First, he, start, he goes into a list of his own religious heritage. And then he talks about his ministerial, his his ministry work and his achievements. And then he also talks about what he suffered in order to affect a lasting ministry. And so he starts off with religious heritage. He says, uh, oh, these guys claim to be uh, Jewish people from Palestine, you know, Abraham's descendants. Oh, really? Okay. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. And he says, I am more. You know, I want to point out here that some of the trials and sufferings that Paul is going to list here, some of these uh, we can read when we go through the book of Acts. And Luke chronicles some of the uh, persecutions that Paul endured during the time of his ministry. But Luke doesn't tell the whole story. There's lots more that Paul went through that you're never going to read in the book of Acts. There's no one person that can ever summarize uh, the the totality of a person's life and their activities. So Paul gets into it and he says, uh, I have worked much harder. I have been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. You know, other than blasphemy and, and death, For blasphemy, Uh, the most severe form of punishment that the Jews would give to somebody is this idea of the 40 lashes minus one. It comes out of the law again. It it comes out of uh, Deuteronomy chapter 25, and it says, If the guilty man deserves to be... Where are we here? If the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall make him lie down and have him flogged in his presence with the number of lashes his crime deserves. But he must not give him more than 40 lashes. And Paul says he received that five times. Five times uh, on the part of the Jewish people. Um, He goes on and he says, three times I was beaten with rods. Now that's the Roman form of punishment, to be beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. You know, we only know of one occasion where Paul was beaten with rods. It comes from Acts chapter 16. It comes from the time when Paul was on a second missionary journey with Silas and Timothy, and they end up uh, joining Luke at that time because Luke changes the pronoun to we. And so he says, here's what our adventures became in Acts chapter 16. And Paul's wondering, where do we go next? And he has a vision at night, and there's a Macedonian who, uh, in the vision. And he says, come over here and help us. And so Paul and his missionary team they go west, and that's how the gospel reached Europe, because Philippi was the very first city in Europe to receive the gospel and have a church plant by the Apostle Paul uh, to the Gentiles. And so here's Philippi in northern Greece, and, and Paul and his team, they're preaching the gospel, they're planting a church, everything's going great, and finally there was persecution. And there was persecution, and they got dragged before the magistrates, and the magistrates believed the accusers more than Paul and Silas in their defense. And so they beat him with rods severely, and they threw him into jail. And it was that night around midnight that God caused this great earthquake And uh, uh, the prison doors were thrown open, the chains fell off, and Paul was able to speak to the Philippian jailer. By the way, one of my dream scenarios as a pastor is is to have somebody like the Philippian jailer, because he comes up and he asks the question that every pastor is just dying to have somebody ask. At at, at the time of that miracle, he's about to kill himself because all the prisoners he thought had escaped, and Paul says, "'Don't do yourself any harm, we're all here.'" And he comes up to Paul and Silas, and he falls on his knees before them, and he says, brothers, what must I do to be saved? And it's just like, why doesn't anybody ask that question anymore? Why doesn't anybody come up to somebody who's a a pastor or a Christian and says, what do I need to do to be saved? What do I need to do to have a right relationship with God? And I would just say, glad you are asked. Glad you asked. Let's talk about that. So, but Paul was beaten with rods on there. You know, it was not easy living life of an apostle. And I can imagine how many times as Paul was beaten with rods or he was given the 40 lashes minus one or he, was, he was, had stones thrown at him or all the other kinds of persecution Paul exerted, how many times was Paul attempt, tempted to quit? How many times was Paul tempted to just take his apostle towel? You know, you, you have this white towel like in the boxing matches and stuff. And just how many times could Paul have just thrown in the towel and says, you know what, I, I quit, I've had enough. I can't take any more of this. Lord Jesus, please just go and find someone else to carry on the work. I'm done. But you know what? Paul never did that. He never said that. He never quit. In Acts chapter 14, talking about stoning and being stoned by, uh, by these persecutors, Paul and Barnabas, they're on their first missionary journey. They're sharing the good news of Jesus wherever they went. They come to this town called Lystra in southern Turkey. They had some good success preaching the gospel there. And then opposition came. It says, then some Jews came from Antioch. And Iconium, and they won the crowd over, and they stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the apostles, after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. Now, this is an amazing scene. So Paul's preaching the gospel to them. There's a miracle that happened. They thought that, that Paul and, and uh, Barnabas were gods. And they had to say, no, we're not gods. We're human beings just like you are. And they used that as a platform to share the good news of Christ with them. And then these Jews came on from another city, and they started rabble-rousing the crowd. And the crowd finally uh, gave in to the opposition, and they stoned Paul. Many commentators think that Paul was actually stoned to death during this time. He, they thought he was dead anyway. They took his body... And they dragged him outside the city of Lystra. And so now Paul's laying there outside of the city. And the disciples, who probably fled during this persecution and the stoning, now they go outside the city and they're all gathering around Paul. You know, so here's Barnabas and, and, the, other, and the other believers. And they're like, what's, we just lost our apostle. And then miraculously, Paul comes to life again. And this is what I think would happen. This is what I thought was going to happen when you're, when you're reading this. Paul comes to life again and he says, man, that was some nasty business. I don't think we ought to go into that town anymore. In fact, didn't Jesus say just to take the sandals and, you know, blow the dust off your feet and say, we're never coming to your town again because we don't have a welcome mat. You know what Paul did? It says he, he got up and he went back into the city and he kept on sharing the good news of Christ to those people. Now, that is a tough tough man. That's a man on a mission. That's a man who would not give up. That's a man who feels called by the Lord Jesus Christ. And seriously, when I, I, I see Paul's boldness and I say, why do you think that Paul would be willing to go through all that? Why didn't Paul just tap out and say, enough? I've suffered enough. Why wouldn't he just say, Lord Jesus, please go find someone else? Well, here's the key to Paul. Here's the key to all those who remain in the Lord's service who may find themselves in difficult places. When you know that you are called by God to be somewhere, when you know that God called you to be somewhere, that's when you're willing to endure all kinds of sufferings, all kinds of setbacks, because God called you there and the story's not over yet. You know, in baseball terms, you might only be in the third inning of that ministry And so it's no time to quit because God's not finished with you yet. The story's not written yet. John Wesley's story, 19 years he preaches among opposition and persecution in England before the breakthrough happened. So don't quit yet. The Apostle Paul certainly didn't quit yet. But what he did tell the the people in the very city where he was stoned to death and dragged outside the city. Paul goes back in the city with Barnabas and they appoint elders and leaders of the church. And then Paul reminds them, kind of an understatement at this point to a guy who's probably got all kinds of scars and welts on his face and on his head from the stoning. And Paul says these words, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Wow. Wow. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God." You know, Paul had a lot of scars in his ministry. Personally, I don't think scars are so bad. Scars uh, point out two things. And if you want to bring that up, here's the thing about scars. You know, there was a movie called The Replacements. And I remember this. I always loved this phrase. Uh, The quarterback's talking to these other players and they're talking about suffering pain in the game and all that. And he says, you know what, guys, Don't, don't forget this, pain heals, chicks dig scars, and glory lasts forever. Now, let's go back on the field and let's win this game, right? So he says, here's the thing about scars, scars are a reminder. Scars are a reminder that we've had some kind of a painful experience or a painful trial. But here's the other good thing about scars. Scars are a sign that there was actually healing that took place, right? And so Paul had a lot of scars, but Paul had a lot of healing too. And that was a sign that God had carried him through and that God wasn't done with him yet. But Paul's still sharing about these sufferings that he went through. He says, I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits. I've been in danger from my fellow Jews, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the country, danger at sea. It's almost like wherever Paul says, I'm, I'm going to go this way, danger. Uh, I'll go this way, danger. I'll go this way, more danger. It's very interesting. The Lord Jesus actually told Paul this in Acts chapter 9. He says, I've called this servant Paul. I've called him to be a minister to the Gentiles. I've called him to be my voice to express the good news of Christ to the non-Jewish world. And And then there's sort of this sidebar comment by Jesus at the end. He says, And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. That was in the very beginning of Paul's ministry. Paul knew what was ahead of him. Paul says, I've labored and toiled. I've often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst I've often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Certainly not an easy life. And then despite all the physical suffering, now here's the mental anguish of the care and the pastoring of these churches that sometimes they're going astray. Sometimes they're not following Jesus the way they're supposed to. A church like Corinth, the kind of pressure that that would be on a pastor and a shepherd. He says, besides everything else, I face daily the pressures Of my concern for all the churches. He says, Who is weak that I don't feel weak? Who's led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? Paul carried around this daily concern for the churches that he started. Paul worried that these young believers might not follow God's revelation fully that he shared from them. They could be led astray by these false teachers who would come in afterwards, like the guys that were now in Corinth. And so that worried Paul, that gave him a concern. You know what it tells me about Paul? Paul had a shepherd's heart. Paul had a real protective shepherd's heart for the sheep, for God's people. He wanted to keep them safe. He wanted to lead them to green pastures and still waters. He did not want them to go astray after other false teaching and false gods. You know, I don't know about you if you're a teacher, if you're a life group leader, if you preach the gospel on occasion, like you go somewhere like Redwood Gospel Mission or Oprah to Apple Valley and different convalescent places. There's opportunities that, that people share the gospel every week with other people. But wherever you are, if God has called you to do that, then I pray also that you'll have a really strong, protective, and encouraging heart toward the people, however young or old, that God has entrusted you with. You know, Be a good shepherd to those people. You're not the good shepherd, but you can be a good under-shepherd to those people. Care about them and have a protective shepherd's heart for those people. All right, what are our takeaways this morning? What are are we going to put into action as a result of hearing God's word today? Because it says, you know, we just sang this song. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart. Speak what is true. What can we take home? What can we put into practice? What are our action points to live out? Number one, when serving God gets tough, don't quit. If God's called you to a place, the story's not over yet. The going, you know, here we are with with another cliche. the, The going may get tough. Right, You may endure opposition or persecution or have people misunderstand you or have unfair criticism. You may, you may have to endure all those things, but if God has called you to a place when serving God gets tough, it's not the time to tuck tail and run. It's not the time to take your towel and throw it in or to tap out. Don't quit. Paul said these words in Acts chapter 20. He said, I just want to complete the assignment the Lord gave me, the work of telling others the good news about God's wonderful kindness and love. And Paul said, until I'm finished with that assignment, and until you get to about eight or nine years later when Paul is writing 2 Timothy from prison, and he says, I fought the good fight, I finished the course, I've kept the faith, until you get to that point, do not quit. Secondly, when, not if, when people don't understand you, do not write them off do not write them off. That's what this world does. You know, you disagree with me. You you don't back me. You don't support me. You come against me. You know what? You just made an enemy and I write you off and I'm just going to separate myself from you. I don't want anything more to do with you. That's the world's way. The church is God's family. And in God's family, we've got to learn to reconcile our problems with each other. And so there are going to be times when people don't understand you, but don't write them off. Paul says, Endured all of those things, all of that opposition, all that suffering he endured for the sake of God's people. People you care about, you know what? Yeah, they may frustrate you at times, but it is worth the effort to keep reaching toward them, to keep reconciling with them. So when people don't understand, you don't write them off. And then thirdly, when you get the opportunity, keep pointing people to Jesus. When you get the opportunity, Keep pointing people to Jesus because you know what Paul recognized? He's not the savior of the world. Even the gospel he preached, those words, those words themselves, themselves by themselves, even a Gideon Bible, that's not necessarily in and of itself going to save anybody. Jesus is the one who saves people. God's word points people to Jesus. Paul says, I'm a voice Christ. I'm an apostle of Christ. I'm an ambassador. I'm a representative. But you know what Paul says? I can't save you from your sins. Only Jesus can. So keep pointing people to Jesus. He's the one who can save them and change their lives forever. You know, I want to clear up something that I said last week, because we were talking about strongholds, and we're talking about the need to recognize what strongholds and oppositions to God, opposition to the gospel message are, and how we need to figure out those those strongholds are and to reject them. And one of the biggest strongholds I said that's in our society right now, there's a stronghold that says, you know what? All roads, all religions, all philosophies, they lead to God. I wanna clarify what I meant by that because I heard Greg Laurie in the Harvest Crusade last weekend and I heard him from Angel Stadium and he said this, he said, you know, it is true, all roads do lead to God, but not all roads lead to heaven. Do you understand what the difference of that is? All roads lead to God in the sense that the Bible says is very clear, each one of us, once it is appointed for each of us to die and after that to face judgment. So we're all gonna come before God. The question is, is God gonna be your savior or is God going to be your judge? Because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So all roads lead to God, but do all roads lead to heaven? Is the road that you're on going to lead to heaven for you? Because only faith in Jesus as your forgiver and leader, that's the only road that's going to lead you to heaven. He is the light of the world, he said. Whoever follows him would not walk in darkness, but would walk in the light of eternal life. So what about you today? Where are you in your your heart? Where are you in your relationship with God today? Where are you on that spectrum of unbelief and checking out the Christian faith and maybe getting to the point of saying, you know what, I do believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be. I do believe that he is the savior of the world. I believe he's the son of God. I believe that he loves me and that he wants to save me from all the sins and the wrong things that I've done. Are you ready to put your trust in Jesus Christ? Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, I recognize that you are more than just a man. You're more than just a good teacher, a good philosopher. You're not just a guru. Lord, you you said that you're the bread of life, and whoever comes hungry, that you would feed that person spiritually. You said you're the light of the world, that we don't have to walk around spiritually blind anymore. You're going to give us the revelation of what is true and that you are the resurrection and the life, that you gave your life, you died on the cross for us so that we would die to sin and live for righteousness. Lord, it says by your stripes we've been healed. And so today, today, Lord, we declare that we believe in you. We declare that we are your followers. We put our trust in you. Lord, we commit our lives to follow you. Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your forgiveness. And now, Lord, we ask that you lead us on the path that you have for us to go, following you, reading your word, joining a local congregation, getting into a life group, finding a place to serve. Lord, help us to take steps to grow us in our faith. And we love you because you loved us first. Help us to follow you and you alone.